And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. And I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're doing something that's very in line with our mission and what we're up to, but we're reading a text that is maybe a little bit different than what we usually read. We are exploring the political life of Black communist Claudia Jones, left of Karl Marx, by Carol Boyce Davies. And we're specifically reading together chapter one, Women's Rights slash Workers' Rights slash Anti-Imperialism, Challenging the Super Exploitation of Black Working Class Women. Harmony, big picture, what did you think of this chapter? What did you learn from this chapter? What are your thoughts? Okay, well, first I want to start a little bit about why we chose to read this text, I think. Because we don't, even though we sometimes delve into academic texts, we don't typically read whole academic books in this in this sort of way. This is a Duke University publication. So it is it's a real academic text primarily looking at the body of work produced by a woman named Claudia Jones who was a big figure in the Communist Party within the United States in the 1940s onward and then towards the 1950s she was actually deported and sent to Britain so then she became a big figure within the communist party within the UK so part of the reason i wanted to look at this text was because i think i saw it recommended somewhere online when in reference to how race and communism intersect throughout history and these are all still pretty new topics to me as longtime listeners might know And so I just wanted to learn more about communism. And it was important to me that if I did learn about communism, that we were centering a voice that was also racially marginalized and because we're a feminist podcast, preferably a woman. So that's how we found this book. It's gotten rave reviews. Maggie owns it. And I think I my overall my overall thoughts after having read this chapter, I think it didn't really introduce necessarily new concepts to me, but I thought that it was interesting because as Maggie and I kind of look more frequently on history and the history of the leftist movement in particular, and the history of different ideas like intersectionalism, like critical race theory, it becomes more apparent how even though these are words that might be relatively new to us or relatively new in the mainstream consciousness of the United States, that these ideas have always existed. So I think that the book just kind of further outlined that for me. And it was really cool to see that there are historical figures that are doing this this work and proposing these ideas throughout the entirety of the United States history. And also kind of disheartening because it was like, oh, we were talking about this in 1940 and we still don't get it. So I think those are my general thoughts. What about you, Maggie? (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I feel very similarly. And I think to piggyback off of your initial conversation about why we chose this book, I also, Harmony and I make a podcast where as lay people, we very much try and just showcase the ways in which you can have thoughts about the world, even if you aren't an expert on a specific topic and the ways in which that we can all be continually learning together. But this is especially a text where I want to really emphasize that the book that we are reading is written by an expert and Harmony and I are not (laughs) experts in this topic in the life of Claudia Jones. So this is very much her and I just trying to contextualize, I think, how this, how Claudia Jones's body of work and how Carol Boyce Davies' thoughts on that body of work can now sort of influence and add to that learning and understanding that we're kind of collectively doing on the podcast. I think that I agree with you in that there wasn't necessarily a ton of new concepts to me that were introduced in this chapter. Although I will say that having said that, while I feel like I have a pretty clear sense of the author's arguments on women's rights and workers' rights and kind of the why Jones was left of the, is sort of being positioned as being left of Karl Marx because of that. I think I still have a lot more thinking to do about those things, but especially have a lot more thinking on what that has to do with specifically anti-imperialism and kind of a transnationalist version of feminism. So I'm interested to think more about that. And another thing that was interesting for me is Reading this made me think of an episode Harmony and I recorded maybe three or four months ago at this point where she and I were talking about why talking about marginalization is so difficult because it's not as if there is often one thing that completely dominates an individual's life and completely everybody has different experiences individually of oppressions and how different oppressions that might be putting pressure on them shape their lives. And I wish so badly in that episode, as we were talking and thinking about it, I had the term super exploitation, because I feel like to me, that term specifically really has illuminated what I've been struggling to articulate, like my entire life as an academic, essentially. And so having that be so clearly explained and defined here felt like such a light bulb moment for me to be like, Finally, I have found the term that someone smarter than me has coined for something that I've been trying and struggling to articulate an abstract thought about, and it made it really concrete for me. So I really appreciated that as well about this first chapter. I'm curious, that was a new term for me as well. So I wonder, is that, it sounded like that was being attributed as a Marxist term. Is that not a Marxist term? Is that a Claudia Jones term? Do you remember from the text? I think it is a Claudia Jones term. And if it's not the way that Boyce Davies is positioning it is specifically in the way in which Claudia Jones used super exploitation, which in this chapter was specifically to talk about the exploitative powers of oppression under capitalism and colonialism that are very much experienced by individuals and groups in different life situations. And then Jones was very specifically talking about the kind of trinity of power oppression that's experienced by working class Black women who experience the pressures of racial oppression and economic oppression and gender oppression simultaneously. So I don't know... I don't remember specifically if super exploitation was something that Claudia Jones was specifically using in this way, but the way that Boyce Davies uses that term specifically, I think, relates to Claudia Jones's usage of it, which is kind of that specific 
level of intersection. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Maggie. I too want to learn more about transnationalism, transnationalism and how that affects our struggles here on the home front. I think it makes sense for Claudia Jones in particular. So let me let me give you all a little summary that I learned from Wikipedia because this is a layman podcast. <laughs> and Wikipedia is an internet encyclopedia. And I don't think that it's particularly wrong to use it because I'm not doing this super academically. But Claudia Jones was born in the 1910s. I can pull up the article here. And she was actually born in the West Indies, I believe. Yeah, so in particular, she was born in Trinidad and Tobago, it says. So I don't know how that works, but she's from those two nations. And she migrated here in the U.S. in her early childhood and lived in Harlem. So she never went to college. She just did high school. And then in her early career, she initially she was working as a domestic worker, but then she started working for the communist for a communist newspaper and i thought that was really cool because it was in the 1930s or something when she found her first newspaper job let's see it was in 1936 i think it says No, 1937. In 1937, she found her first newspaper job and within a year had become an editor, which is amazing. And I just think that's super cool because I never hear about women. I mean, there there definitely were journalists that were women back in the 1930s. I know they exist, but it's not something I think about very often because there were so few people doing professionalized jobs, I'd say, in the workforce during that time who were women. So that's really cool. And she just continued to work within different communist parties. And eventually in the 19 in 1948, she was imprisoned for the first time, it sounds like. And she eventually got deported in the 1950s to the UK. And even though she never, at least the way that I'm, I'm, understanding this from the chapter that we read she never called herself a feminist necessarily she was always advocating for women's rights and in particular black women's rights one interesting thing that the chapter talked about was her opposition to the equal rights amendment and that was essentially because the equal rights amendment she felt like wasn't positioning a intersectional enough narrative about woman's inequality inequity or what what women deal with across the spectrum so that's all of my knowledge for you from wikipedia (laughs) thank you wikipedia we appreciate you being a free encyclopedia not sponsored by wikipedia just what a useful resource in this circumstance something that i can talk about with a little bit of authority because this intersects with my professional academic work is something that I want to just contextualize a little bit on the podcast that we've talked about, I think, in passing, but that I've had a a growing, I guess, brush with as I've been doing my work as as a professional public historian, which is this idea that Claudia Jones never necessarily called herself a feminist. And then our author is sort of positioning her as a feminist in those times. And also, especially importantly, being one of the major individual figures that then really informed second wave feminism, especially Black second wave feminism in the 70s and 80s, which is that generally speaking, and this is the most broad strokes possible, 
in the historical field, because this is an academically historical text, there are kind of two camps here about whether you should assign contemporary terminology to historic figures. This is especially a conversation in queer history specifically because there's so much new lexicon about queer identities in the contemporary moment that just didn't exist in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. But essentially there are two camps here and one is that you should pretty much only use language that's appropriate to the time period when talking about people and how people self-identify. And then it's your job as a historian to contextualize those terms for your, your lay audience. If you're like me, a public historian or for your academic audience, if you're an academic historian or the second camp is that it's perfectly appropriate to assign contemporary language to historic figures. So long as you couch that, that, language being used specifically is contemporary and offer context around that and why you make that choice specifically. And then there's sort of that third camp of people which occasionally ends up in a bit of a middle ground depending on the place that you're at. I think that Carol Boyce Davies here is sort of ending up a little bit in that middle ground where I think that part of her argument is that Claudia Jones was a feminist, but a lot of that comes out in the ways in which Jones influenced so many later thinkers and philosophers who were very clearly assigned and associated with the feminist movement. So I just wanted to throw that out there as some of my professional context here. I'm not really at a point in my career where I think I have firm opinions on what way to go, but I just thought it was interesting to offer that here because we're dealing with an academic historian text. That is very interesting. I pulled up the text while you were talking to kind of reread it so I could follow along. I think that you're right that it sounds like, from my very, very special layman's knowledge, she's definitely working on a middle ground here. And she pulls up a lot of examples to justify her positioning. I don't think she explicitly calls her a feminist either, but she she positions this could be thought of as feminism. So she pulls up a number of texts to justify this and, and... showcase places in which other movements that are similar to the similar or other movements that embody similar thought are later thought of as feminist movements and and talks a little bit about why black women in particular might and black movements in particular might not want to use the label feminism but one of the things that i found interesting reading was her kind of academic positioning of feminism. At one point, she cites someone where she talks about, she cites someone essentially saying that feminism has to be your your predominant critique in order, in order for something to be feminist. I think I found it. Thus, for example, Rosemary Hennessy and her materialist feminism in the political discourse defines feminism as an emancipatory movement, but also as a set of discourses born out of modernity, which has long questioned the master narratives. Oh, wait, no, that's something else. This is her justification for calling it feminist. But I don't know. She talks about how how we define feminism. And from an academic standpoint, if you're philosophizing under feminism, then gender should be your predominant discourse is is one school of thought that she seemed to suggest. And as she points out here, if you're if you're extending feminist discourse, it can be used to embody other things. But Claudia Jones is interesting because 
she doesn't look at women's rights and emancipation from a simply feminist discourse. She looks at it predominantly through a Marxist-Leninist perspective, meaning that she views socialism as the emancipatory power. And she talks about women's rights in relation to labor and capital and wages and not capital, what is it, production, (laughs) all of these other terms, right, that is associated with a, a Marxist school of thought. And I found that really interesting because if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll you'll notice that Maggie and I are constantly changing our definition of feminism and have very loosey goosey rules for it, right? We can we can call, we call ourselves feminists predominantly because we look at work by woman, and <laughs> we look at work that predominantly features women brushing up against society in some fashion, being marginalized and maybe either either talking about their experiences or breaking through that marginalization. So I don't know. I want to know a little bit about what you thought about these different definitions of feminism and whether that changed for you any of the definitions that we've been using. Well, I think to answer your last question first, I think it just highlighted to me the ways in which you and I genuinely don't have a definition of feminism in so much as we are, I think, most interested in exploring work that deals with predominantly women's experiences. And we like it when those experiences kind of showcase ways in which we feel like we can move forward past hierarchy. But increasingly, over the past three years that we've been doing this podcast, but also just as humans in life, we've also become most concerned with making sure that we are elevating voices and talking about experiences from the furthest margins margins of society and kind of lifting those voices and experiences up, understanding, which is a large part of the argument that's made in this chapter and also one of the ties between Claudia Jones' philosophy and Angela Davis's philosophies, which is that the fastest way to emancipate everybody is to emancipate the Black woman in terms of moving feminism forward, moving society forward, and lifting everybody up to a place in which we all have equal human rights. I think, though, that I also want to push back to a little bit against what you just outlined, because you're correct in in that Jones thinks of everything through that the lens of communism, the lens of economic freedom. But she even goes further than that, because she also describes, Boyce Davies describes on page 48, that Jones even puts the, the woman question, as she terms it, last. Because race comes in many ways as a, as a form of oppression, as a more powerful form of oppression for many Black women than being a woman and how these things tie together. And this is also, I think, especially as a white lady trying to like (laughs) figure out how to couch this conversation, especially complicated because Boyce Davies also makes it clear that this is that Jones's position is more complicated than a race first assertion of politics. It's more that both race and gender affect specifically the experiences of working class black women. But if that if there had to be given more weight to one, it is the race question. And then thinking about the ways in which it's the job of white women, essentially, who are part of this feminist movement, who are part of this communist movement, to make sure that they are centering race in all of their work, because that is the 
that's again the way to to lift everybody to that level of emancipation. So in some ways, I think that if we're talking about the idea the ideologies that Claudia Jones puts first, so to speak, it's kind of hard to parse out because all of them are these overlapping and interweaving narratives. But I think that you're absolutely right because it all does push back against that school of thought of feminism that says gender should be sort of the first and foremost thing that you're looking at. And I think that circling it all, all the way back to that last question you asked, I think that's something that you and I are changing is that while we do explore work that is predominantly about women and written by women, we are not concerned as feminists, I think, with putting gender first. We're concerned with looking at as many forms of the powers of oppression in the world as possible and trying to understand how we can make the world less hierarchical on all fronts at once, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I think that that, I think that you're correct. And I think in particular, especially after George Floyd, I think a lot of scholars, you and I aren't necessarily scholars, but I think our work on the podcast, we've, we've been noticing more the ways in which race affects things and trying to center it more. And I think that the race first narrative is maybe a little bit more predominant now than it once was. But I found that really interesting because I know as a person, as I've talked about on the podcast, right, it's very easy for me to view oppression via gender first. And that has changed the more that we explore different types of oppression. But there are also philosophies that I think could be useful for helping us push push for the end of marginalization if you decide like I don't think you necessarily need to view them first but there are there are philosophies that come from feminist works that I think could push for marginalization first and foremost that could also be useful I guess especially if you're doing scholarly work the idea of a, a, a ethics of care or care of ethics is a feminist term that we come across a lot in library world that essentially states that Women are constantly trying to be conscientious of other people and trying to attend to people's needs. And so if you took up that philosophy, that could be a very feminist philosophy that would help you push through marginalization. I want to read real quickly that quote that is being cited here by Davis. It's from Rosemary Hennis, and she's talking about materialist feminism And she says that feminism is a set of discourses born out of modernity, which has long questioned the master narratives of Western knowledge. And then outside of quotation marks, we see that it's offered a longstanding and producing questioning of the subject of feminism itself. And it is a double move between solidarity (laughs) and critique. So I really enjoy that that idea, that definition of feminism. And I think that it works well if we're centering the feminisms of people like Claudia Jones or Angela Davis that focus on class and particularly the oppression of Black women and focus on raising those people up in order to raise the rest of society up. And I feel like that is a feminist first definition that could definitely be used because this that definition says, hey, you have to constantly be be questioning. And to me, it also kind of sounds like anything that encompasses critical theory, which my understanding of just means that you're questioning power structures consistently. 
So it's interesting how marginalization and fighting against marginalization takes on many specific forms, but has so many similarities. And I always find myself trying to balance the ways in which those, the ways in which we have to honor different experiences, but also the many ways in which we can build solidarity, which is something that Claudia Jones seems to be really good at. And it is talked about in the novel. And maybe Maggie wants to talk about that more and jump off of my rambling a little. Well, I do. But I think first and foremost, I I need to backtrack a little bit, which is to say that I wasn't necessarily trying to say a hard and fast thing about gender first is, is good or bad or whatever. I do think, though, that Boyce Davies has a really interesting slash understandable way of putting the weaknesses of feminism that draws on multiple scholars' work. So on page 55, she says, The possibility of building a non-hierarchical feminism has continued to challenge critical feminist scholarship. In parentheses, the ongoing critique of hierarchy has perhaps paradoxically been one of the movement's strengths. End parenthesis. How can a discourse built on challenging dominance at the level of gender reinstitute another dominance at the level of class, race, national identity, ability, and so on? And then she discusses the fact that the critique of feminism, uh, that, that specific critique of feminism has been largely made and advanced by Black women, which I think that we started to really explore in our Angela Davis episode earlier this season. But to me, that just really succinctly... I think, explained a lot of the things that you and I have also, I think, potentially been a little bit waffly on when we've also kind of talked about white feminism in the past. To me, that's just such a distinct way of poking the hole in the dangers of sometimes putting gender first, or at least how feminism has historically played out in the United States, the actual (laughs) implications and side effects of putting gender first when you're not actually fighting to de-hierarchicalize society on every playing field, but just the playing field that affects you first and foremost. And then I think going off of the other part of what you were talking about is that I think that part of Carol Boyce Davies' argument here is that part of what makes Claudia Jones such an effective political actor, such an important political actor, and part of the reason why I think her story has probably been pretty squashed in history books at large is because she is such a she has such a deep understanding of all of those intersections and moving between all of those intersections and connecting between all of those intersections and I think that that starts to tie into a lot of her work in anti-imperialism that I'm still very much wrapping my mind around but thinking about how immigration status and how a transnational feminism has to be understood through the lens of colonialism and the colonial powers that have dominated the world for centuries and centuries and what those lasting impacts have been. I think that Claudia Jones had a really deep understanding of that and all of that was able to really fuel her idea that putting economic emancipation first or or as a high priority has the ability to make large steps in terms of freedom and emancipation and equal human rights for all. Yes, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of Davis's argument about that, about about what makes Claudia Jones so effective. One of the things that I, I think you and I 
talk a fair amount about colonialism and how it's affected the rest of the world. But as somebody who isn't very learned in history, one of the things this book did for me was highlight all of the different uprisings and revolutions and ideologies that stem from other parts of the world that have been created in response to being colonized. And we've talked a little bit about that, right? We've explored some communist revolutions within, oh, I can't remember where, a Caribbean nation. (laughs) We explored that once in a short story. But I, I just, it really highlighted for me this sort of this information gap that we have in schools about radical ideologies, especially radical. I, I mean, we have, we, we never hear about the communist movement within the United States. So I guess that that exists here too, but it's especially big when it comes to what's going on in a global sense. And especially when it comes to radical ideologies that form with black and brown communities. And I wanted to know if you had a similar a similar sort of recognition. I would say yes and no, because as you know, a lot of my professional work currently deals with the very real effects of colonialism on indigenous populations in the very specific area that I live and work in also to couch all of this. I'm definitely not an expert on how it affects the whole country, but I've weirdly found myself becoming a little bit of an expert in how it affects the very specific area that I live in. I think that for me, what it really helped contextualize was the ways in which colonialism and imperialism outside of the United States have had their effects and how those effects are very different, I think, in some ways than how they played out on the continental United States specifically. And because that's so much of where my basis of knowledge is, is is about how those pressures played out on the continental U.S. And I think that one of the most powerful things quotes in the book that we just read, which I don't unfortunately have in front of me, but stayed with me, was a quote that was discussing the fact that you can't escape the impacts of U.S.'s colonial and imperial effects, or if you do escape it, you will be essentially deeply scarred by it. And that was in direct contrast and opposition to escaping Britain and France's colonial and imperial powers in a way that implied that the lasting effects of those two imperial powers were, if not less bad, at the very least different when you finally found if you were able to to escape it. So I think for me, that really challenged me. And I'm definitely going to bring, I think, this text specifically into some of my professional work thinking about colonialism in the very specific area that I live in, because I think that thinking about the comparing and contrasting and thinking about the differences between how imperialism has played out in other nations as well can only serve to better serve the community that I work with, if that makes sense. That does make sense. While you're talking a little bit about First Nations peoples or Indigenous peoples and I guess you don't have to necessarily bring your work into this. One of the other things that stuck up up to me was this idea of a nation within a nation. And it wasn't something I'm, I'm talking about it now because I'm not entirely sure if I completely understood this part of the text. But I think that it was talking about how a truly free socialist nation would need to make sure that marginalized peoples are self-governing to a certain extent. 
And I was wondering, because you have a little bit more knowledge working with Indigenous peoples in particular, because to me, I saw that and I was like, oh, I I see those terms used often when we're talking about Indigenous nations. I wanted to know what your reaction was to it. Yeah, and I guess to clarify, I should also say I'm not becoming an expert specifically in Indigenous studies or Indigenous nations, and I would never lean to that specific body of knowledge. What I'm most familiar with and what my work uh, revolves around are specific settlers in in the area that I live in, work in, and kind of their intentions and the very direct impacts that they had upon essentially coming here with the intention to colonize. So that's just kind of my little, (laughs) my little one-off disclaimer there, because I would never want to lay claim to that body of knowledge. But, you know, it's funny, and I'm going to sound like a bad scholar based off everything I just said. I don't know that I picked up on that as much. I think that the one thing that really stuck out to me regarding that is that I think that in an equal and free world, the United States would have to be resolved and all of these imperial powers would have to be resolved. And that the idea of a nation within a nation is really important in our current very specific political context. And I don't say this to imply that I think that indigenous nations that are currently seen as sovereign nations aren't sovereign or are less sovereign. But I think that because of the complicated and very morally awful and weird relationships between sovereign nations and treaties with the United States that were illegal and terrible regardless, there's a lot of complication in my understanding to how the levels at which those sovereign nations are, are, the resources in which those sovereign nations are given to actually be sovereign, if that makes sense. And so I think that until the United States and the UK and large swaths of Europe that were very colonizing are actually dissolved. I don't know about the idea of a nation within a nation, because I think that the United States especially is always going to exert power upon whatever it can exert exert power upon. I don't know. I need to think more. I think, so I think I should rephrase my question. I think I was interested in this, not just because of the link to autonomizing marginalized people that we see within indigenous nations who've had their land stolen and were self-governing nations before. But the way that this this term is used in the book, it's referencing Black communities in particular. And I think for me, it stood out because it, it came across as very anarchist, right? This idea that everyone needs to have their own say in their own governance. And as somebody who has not who has read more on anarchism than I have on communism, even though the two in modern and modern political discourse are so linked. And even though a lot of communist theories play into what we think of today as modern anarchism, I was just, I was struck by this idea of self-governance. And I think wondering how that works in a socialist world, in a communist world too. I guess I can kind of see it because I think that communism is all about, you know, the the people owning the means of production, right? So if that were the case, then marginalized peoples would have to have some sort of governance of their own, right? So I, I think it was just, I think that term, from my understanding of what Davies was saying, simply speaks to the idea that different communities have different needs and need to rule themselves. Does that clarify anything? I don't know if I actually posed a question at you. 
<laughs> does does that sound like a question to you? Do you have anything you want to add? <laughs> no, no, no. That did help clarify. So to respond to that specifically, I think, yeah, I think that at its essence, that idea of self-governance as Davies is talking about it is points to the fact that different communities have different needs and need to be able to advocate for those needs on an equal playing field. And that self-governance is the most powerful and important way I could conceive of within a communist structure in order to actually be able to make that happen. But I think that you're right is that it does feel very anarchist to me. And in some ways, anarchy feels like the polar opposite of communism, because as so much of our popular understanding of communism is government is anywhere versus everywhere versus the popular understanding of anarchism is that government is nowhere. And obviously those popular understandings all come with misconceptions, but the irony of that does strike me as a little bit funny in terms of the very basis of, of where <laughs> lay people ideas. But I think that you're right. And I do also though wonder where self-governance gets complicated in, when you start thinking about multitudes of identities that are maybe even more individualized than the three identities that Davies talks about here, like LGBTQIA identities and disability identities. But I wonder then if Jones's response to that would response to that would still be potentially that race is the most powerful pressure here and therefore would sort of be one of the most powerful ways in which to self-govern via marginalized communities. I don't know. I don't really have an answer to that. I just I don't know. I'm thinking maybe that is the way that Jones would respond to a query of that nature. You touched a little bit on this idea of identity and how that becomes complex when we're talking about self-governance because identity is vast and we have so many different parts of them. And that's the concept of identity is something I think a lot about right now as we've moved to a kind of more identity-centric social justice. And in some ways, I I worry sometimes, like it's not, it's not an overall worry. It's just like a, when I'm grappling with these ideas that identity works to works against solidarity. Sometimes we're all so eager to label ourselves and join a community that we end up seeing people who aren't a part of that community as outsiders when we could be developing some sort of solidarity. And I mentioned this because the whole the whole this whole first chapter that's talking about Claudia Jones's work is talking about that intersection of identity and then goes a step further to emphasize the ways in which Jones's personal identity have affected her politics and it does that while also emphasizing that there can be solidarity and i guess i want to know if you think that the text has any answers, or maybe you have any insights on ways in which in our modern culture today, we can honor identity while also finding those bridges and connections across differences. Because I think when we're talking about communist and anarchist and leftist politics in particular, that's the big thing. When we talk about marginalization and lifting the bottom up, well, who is the bottom, right? Whose voices are we listening to, right? It, it's all centered on this question of identity. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think that in my life and my understanding of the world as it stands on June 13th, 2022... <laughs> My answer to that, or at least my philosophy about that, is that we 
bridge those gaps by finding better ways to celebrate our differences and more ways to empathize with our differences, but also ways to identify and celebrate the connections that we have. I think that especially among various marginalized communities, there can be similarities in the ways in which oppression plays out in our lives. And sometimes I think And I experience this as a woman all the time. I think sometimes it can feel very finger pointy when you're confronted. And it's easy to get defensive when you're confronted with the ways in which your experience of oppression is similar to somebody who whose experience of oppression you wouldn't necessarily identify with as being part of your in-group specifically. But I think that as we all think about our lives empathetically and think about the lives of others empathetically, that can be a strength with which to bind ourselves together and fight back, which is to say, these are things that connect us even if our life experiences are different and not all the ways in which oppression plays out in our lives are going to be exactly the same. So how can I help you in the ways in, in the ways in which those oppressions differ and how can we work together in the way those oppressions play out similarly, if that makes sense. And it sounds like from this this one chapter that we've gotten of Davy's book, that Jones was continually grappling with how to center the voices of black of black women in the Communist Party in particular, but also who she should be partnering with to gain solidarity and who who the party should be partnering with and what ways they could find connections. And I think on top of that, she was doing that politically and professionally, but also personally. And I think that's also an important point too, which is that Claudia Jones was a clearly a great philosopher who understood so deeply about the ways in which oppression plays out in our lives and believed so firmly that a communist future with economic freedom would provide emancipation for vast, vast, vast proportions of our society. But Boyce Davies also talks about the fact in that the ways in which her personal relationships with men sometimes helped or hindered that philosophy and that we can, even our greatest thinkers in the world and the people who have some of the best ideas are still being, still have those pressures being acted upon them, right? And that in their personal lives, those pressures are going to play out. Boyce Davies talks a little bit on page 53 about the ways in which the lack of support that Jones sometimes had as from her partner, her longtime partner, played out in her professional life, which is just that it was one of the many ways in which her work as part of the Communist Party was devalued as a leader and not necessarily being seen as a leader and not being given the space to make to do that work as a political leader. And the fact that she stayed with him anyways is kind of explored because there's other ways in which he really broadens her political ideologies and he helps kind of showcase how communism is playing out in China to her. And so there's this give and take back and forth, which I think just all boils down to the fact that the personal is political and the political is personal and that all of this work is imperfect, even when you have really great ideas and really wonderful philosophies. When oppression is still actively playing out in your life, it's going to make how the choices you make in your life complicated in terms of your own philosophies. And I don't say that to say that like Boyce Davies is positioning Jones as a hypocrite in any way. It's just to say that Jones's personal life had an effect on her policies and her politics and that there were limitations in her personal life that are are directly reciprocated in all of that. And it's just, it's complicated and it's messy. And that's true of everybody, no matter what your philosophies are. That's true. And I really appreciate that she includes that because when I read about historical figures, I don't always see that being 
I, I don't think I've ever seen someone being like, and this man <laughs> played a little bit into her philosophy at the time, right? Because it sounds a little regressive and we don't want to talk about our heroes that way. But I think that that was important because it helps position the larger context of her thought. And I think if we're going to be good critical thinkers who are trying to, at the very least, think through the ways in which oppression works, we need to be able to recognize what contributes to our belief systems and be able to continually think about that. What is contributing to this belief and why? I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that all of this is also part of the reason in which there are so many competing philosophies about how to achieve equal human rights out there. One of the things that we haven't touched on, but that Boyce Davies really dives into is in the 40s and 50s, some of the back and forth that was happening between political groups and kind of scholarly and academic groups too, of thoughts that are sort of, there was this group called the Sojourners who were thinking from a very feminist lens, who had the critique of those who were putting that communist lens first to say, you know, if you think that (laughs) we eradicate capitalism, that that's going to essentially fix the sins of men. (laughs) And that's going to fix the patriarchal hierarchy that you're delusional. And then the chapter ends with Boyce Davies positioning Claudia Jones's thought here, which is that if we eradicate economical hierarchy, then she really believes, it seems that a lot of hierarchy related to gender would also start to dissipate because she felt it was really erroneous on page 68 to to hold on to the you know, to the notion that women's oppression stems not from the capitalist system but from men so there's this very it, it, i i just say this to say that it's complicated that if there was one straightforward philosophy to follow to figure out where hierarchy stems from what the greatest evil in the world is then a lot of this stuff would be a lot simpler to fix <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't catch that it was the Sojourner Truths who were making that comparison, but that makes sense because there there does seem to be a lot of pushback against the Sojourner Truths within the Communist Party. I think that the, those were the people I wasn't reading directly off the page, so I am sorry if I was misattributing that paraphrase. That's interesting, though, because Jones herself was a part of the Sojourner Truths. Very interesting. All right, I think that's all I have to talk about today within our limited time frame, but this is a good book. And um, even though it might be kind of academic, it's very readable. So if y'all can, you should read it. Don't be scared. It's okay. You can just read 10 pages and call it a day. Maggie, do you have anything else you want to add? I would say as well, one thing that this chapter hints at but doesn't dive into because Boyce Davies goes into it later in the book is that Claudia Jones is very much was very much a person who was for acts of art as acts of resistance and transgression as well. There's a whole, she has a whole body of work that's entirely poetry that's all about resistance. And Boyce Davies dives into that later in the book as well. I think we might actually be reading that chapter in this book for next season. So you can keep an ear out for that. But I think that that's another way to make this book feel a little bit more accessible from the outside. But Harmony's right, it's very, very readable. And it's very interesting. And it made me think differently about my positions and my work and my life. And I'm grateful for that. (laughs) And do we have anything coming out next week? Or is this our last episode of the season? This is our last episode of the season. All right, folks. So we will see you again at the end of August, which is pretty exciting. Well, it's exciting for you and me. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Maybe our listeners like listening to us any week, (laughs) every week. You know, you don't know. I don't know what's wrong with you people. (laughs) 
that's all, folks, until August. We will see you August 29th. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebel girls book club on Facebook at rebel girls book one on Twitter. And you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.